0: Welcome to the Wish Well podcast, a women's integrative summit on health and wellness. A podcast hosted by Dr. Michelle Dang, a board certified anesthesiologist and pain management physician with additional fellowship training in integrative medicine. This podcast will feature weekly episodes with women from all walks of life discussing their health and wellness journeys.
1: Hi, everyone. It's Dr. Michelle Dang with the Wish Well Podcast. I'm bringing to you today, episode 28, Perfectionism with Dr. Kara Pepper. So Kara and I talked briefly about her being a professional ballet dancer, which I think is super cool. And I think that her experience is a very interesting one that she has shared with us today. And she talks about uh, studying abroad ballet as well. So I think it's a really cool story. So I hope you enjoy this episode. And just to share a little bit more about Dr. Pepper. She is, as I mentioned, a professional ballet dancer turned primary care internist and life coach. She strives to help her patients achieve wellness in all aspects of life. She coaches physicians on burnout, transition, and how to feel as good as they look on paper. She lives in Atlanta, Georgia with her husband and two children. If you want to find out more information about Dr. Pepper, go check out her website, which is KaraPepperMD.com and also on social media at KaraPepperMD. And as always, if you do enjoy listening to these episodes, please remember to swing on by iTunes and leave a rating and review. The reason why we always say that is the more comments and reviews that you leave, the more the show will be visible to others who may not have otherwise stumbled upon this podcast. And so as always, I enjoy making these podcasts and releasing these episodes So, I hope to continue every week. So, just tune in every week for new episodes. Otherwise, please stay safe and stay healthy. Hi, everyone. It's Dr. Michelle Dang with the Wish Well Podcast. I'm here today with Dr. Kara Pepper. Dr. Kara Pepper is an internal medicine physician in um, Atlanta, Georgia. So welcome, Dr. Pepper. Hey, thanks for having me. Awesome. So tell us a little bit about what health and wellness means to you.
0: Yeah, so I I think of wellness really as a verb, not necessarily as a state of being. Mm -hmm. So it's an active process of filling up multiple... Um, parts of you, mental, emotional, spiritual, physical, occupational, environmental, relational parts of you, um, and using those full tanks to weather the storm of life. So it's not really the absence of disease or the absence of sadness, but rather this active process of evaluating what you need at any given moment and making sure that you're filling that part of you. Awesome. So we spoke a little bit before um, we started
1: recording and um, I think that you picked a very interesting word. So can you share the word that you picked for the episode? Perfectionism. Awesome. So tell me a little bit or tell us all a little bit about why you picked that word.
0: Well, it's a word that is near and dear to my heart and has been at the core of a lot of decisions that I've made, um, both good and bad in my lifetime. You know, it really can be a superpower for many of us high achievers and also be a nemesis, something that really keeps us from success, um, which is not the way that a lot of people think of perfectionism, but certainly the way a lot of people experience it. Yeah.
1: And um, being a woman in medicine, just like yourself, I am guilty of... that perfectionism and um, like you said, definitely can be good and bad in a lot of ways. So tell us a little bit about your journey and, um, you know, I I read your bio, so I um, know that you were a ballerina. So tell us a little bit about that.
0: Yeah, so (laughs) when I was a kid, you know, I, I wanted to be a professional ballet dancer and I had this really unique opportunity in eighth grade to leave home and move to Russia and train at the Bolshevik Ballet to dance. And when I came home knew that's really what I wanted to do for a living so went away to a performing arts high school to train and then got a, a job dancing right out of high school and and you can imagine for ballet dancers having lots of structure lots of rigor and perfectionism um, was certainly a core part of my experience growing up um, and it may have been the pack of cigarettes I was smoking every day or the diet of diet coke that I was living on but I kept breaking bones and ultimately uh, could not dance anymore. So uh, I thought maybe I wanted to be a physical therapist, but my orthopedist told me my personality was better suited for medicine, which I think is a nice way of saying that I'm bossy and I like to be in charge. So I applied to medical school and and got in and, and here I am. So...
1: Well, that was a lot of information in one minute. So, <laughs> I'd like to kind of back up a little bit. Um, and you know, I, I I took ballet lessons when I was in middle school, but only for a few years. And uh, my ballet teacher told my parents that they wanted me to. Um, go to the Houston Ballet School and get trained, but that never happened. But as a child um, and making the, decis- the decision or having the desire to go to such a higher level of training and moving to a completely different country, um, tell us a little bit about what was going on in your mind as a, as a child. And um, I'm assuming your parents were very supportive. What was that even like as
0: a child? Yeah, I, you know, for me, you know, um, ballet really was my passion, of course, it's what I love to do and what I felt good doing. But I think it also was such an early form of escape for me, you know, I could go to the ballet studio, turn off my brain and just dance. And so although I would not have told you at the time, or for many years later, you know, any stress or anxiety that was surfacing as a middle schooler, high schooler, and beyond, you know, it was easy to just mute all of that by dancing and having this like ever attainable goal of getting better and better at the craft of, of ballet. Um, and so I, I can only imagine what it was like for my parents to send their child to Soviet Russia in um, 1991. Um, and I was there right before the fall of, um, the, there was a coup in 91. So um, I think my parents were Um, appropriately concerned, but also incredibly supportive and just felt like that was the right thing for me as an individual, which I'm very grateful for.
1: So, Did your parents go with you and stay with you or how long were you in Russia? (laughs) Yeah,
0: I was there there, um, for almost five months, so the second half of my eighth grade. Um, you know, which, this is not lost on me because now I have a sixth grade daughter and I think there's no chance I would send this girl to Russia for five months by herself. Yeah. <laughs> uh, it's a different time, different kid, I guess. But they came with me to Russia, dropped me off, and I stayed in the dorms there at the, at the school at Bolshev, um, which is mostly international students who were training there.
1: And that's so interesting because in 1991, we don't have the technology then that we have now. So, I mean, if you were to send your child or if I were to send my child, um, you know, with the ability to FaceTime or video chat, um, it makes it a little bit easier. But I mean, I'm sure back then it was a completely different experience.
0: Yeah, that's a great observation. I mean, I called once a week or they called me rather um, And uh, it was Sunday nights and this was back when you had to like pay by the minute. So I can't remember how many dollars per minute it was to even call your kid across the world. Um, but that was the only way to communicate except for letters. So they sent me with two suitcases, um, one with clothes. And the second was literally toilet paper and food, which now in the COVID crisis, you know, this obsession with, (laughs) right. was very familiar, but they didn't know what they were sending me into. So I moved from sunny Florida to ice cold, very snowy winter Russia. So it was quite a, quite an experience. Wow. And
1: so um, what is, what is if you could, and this is just interesting to me, um, you know, being that you were in eighth grade and experiencing this, um, if there was, was there one, one or a few events living there for those five months that kind of, um, um, you can recall that was like life changing or any kind of interesting
0: events there? (laughs) Sure. I mean, I, I, like I said, we're having a middle school daughter now. I can't imagine turning her loose to do some of the things that I did, but you know, they didn't really have taxis then. You would just stick your arm out and um, kind of like a early Uber, like someone would just stop and pick you up and you'd tell them where you wanna go. So um, I, had, I spoke the language, I'd taken classes and I was speaking, but you know it takes a lot of trust for you know, a 90 pound kid to you know, navigate across the city. So the transportation in and of itself was interesting because I didn't end up getting kidnapped or, you know, lost. Um, oh my gosh. I remember the, the, the people being just incredibly um, gracious and welcoming and friendly, you know, you'd walk into someone's home, like a flat, like an apartment, and, you know, they'd have these enormous meals cooked and um, just incredibly hospitable, really just warm. And I think particularly at that time, there really wasn't a lot of understanding about the Russian and American relationship um, on an individual level, certainly from a political standpoint, but I don't think a lot of Americans and Russians had really interacted that closely. Mm -hmm. So that was really beautiful. And then, you know, lastly, you know, I, you know, was in eighth grade. And so you do what eighth graders do, which is experiment and take risks. So my first alcohol was over there with Russian vodka mixed with grape Kool-Aid of all things. Yuck. But I remember oh. <laughs> this, this Monday night phone call, my parents called and I'm like, oh, what'd you do last night? And I'm like, well, I drank some vodka and thank God my mom had laryngitis. So she's always the one who did the reprimanding and the screaming and she couldn't say a word. So I think it, it was uh, God protecting me from the wrath that oh inevitably interfered. It must have had at the point. So Anyway, it was an incredible, I'm totally skipping over the ballet. I mean, the ballet was like world-class training, right? I mean, it was so incredible to meet majestic dancers. So it really kind of set me um, up for not only just high achievement and this theme of perfectionism, but also knowing that my path forward was not going to be the traditional path that most um, people take. And so it Mm -hmm. allowed me this confidence to just take risks and... Um, know that my way was not going to be the, the uh, standard way that most kids move forward.
1: So do you feel like the, having the ballet training trained you or gave you the skills to, I guess, um, I don't want to say perfect to be a perfectionist, like it has a negative connotation, but
0: do you feel or do you feel that that was just always part of your personality? I definitely think that it's part of my personality, um, but it certainly was fed by this no end in sight um, level of achievement, right? And so I've said for a long time, I really do think that ballet was what led me to a career in medicine. Um, It gave me the work ethic, the um, lifelong learning, the drive, personal sacrifice, long hours, working when you don't feel like working. I mean, dancers and doctors really are the same people, right? Like lots Mm -hmm. of perfectionism, some narcissism, but you know, really, it's the same skill set, um, just different skills. Yeah.
1: So, um, so then you, you decided to go to medical school. So was that a difficult decision? You mentioned um, thinking about doing physical therapy and then getting the suggestion to go into medical school. So can you tell us a little bit about that?
0: Yeah. So I um, had made my own decisions and made my way really from an early age. And so um, I had, in that transition between when I ended my career in dance due to injuries and then moving back home to Florida to go back to college, um, I shadowed a physical therapist for the summer and really saw that they took orders from the physicians. Now, I'm Mm -hmm. friends and um, work closely with physical therapists now, and I know that they're perfectly capable and frankly don't need physicians all the time to tell them what to do, but it felt that way to me at the time as a young woman, Mm -hmm. so I wanted to be the one making the calls, and so medicine seemed like a, a more palatable way more palatable way forward for me Um, but I didn't know any doctors I didn't have any in my family but I was a good student I always liked science and I had a work ethic and I think ultimately with most things in life but particularly in medicine you have to be able to think and you have to care and you have to work hard the rest Mm -hmm. you can learn so Mm -hmm. I think I was well prepared because of ballet to be a physician that's really great
1: And so you decided to go into internal medicine. Was that also a difficult decision, or did you always feel like you wanted to do internal medicine once you started medical school?
0: (laughs) (laughs) No, I went to med school to be an orthopedic surgeon. Mm -hmm. And, you know, the first day in anatomy lab, people rip open the body bags. You know who the surgeons are. They're excited to dissect. They're so excited about anatomy. And of course, I cried and cried because it was a person with a story, and I wanted to know their family, and I wanted to know what got them there. I mean, I I clearly was meant to have the relationship long-term, um, with this patient. And, um, I thought, you know, I really fell in love with cardiology during first year and thought that I would be a cardiologist, but spent my whole med school career doing outreach, um, screening, ran this huge organization that does, um, clinics and health fairs, um, in my med school in Miami. and. It was no surprise to anyone except for me that I really fell in love with primary care. And so ultimately changed my application as I was applying to to residency at Emory um, from categorical to the primary care track. And so I went in to primary care. So So how long have you been in practice now? um, Let's see, this is my 12th year post-residency. So I'm solidly mid-career now, even though in my brain, I still think I'm an early career physician. So tell me a little bit about, um, I know that you do some coaching,
1: so I kind of want to transition into talking about a little bit of your coaching. So is this something separate than your clinical practice, or is this something that you also incorporate into your practice?
0: Yeah, so really my coaching story started early in my um, clinical practice. You know, most of what we do in medicine is coaching anyway. I realized Mm -hmm. I can't manage diabetes without really addressing All the other stuff you know why are you why are your sugar sides because you are overeating why are you overeating it's because you're managing your mental health what's driving your mental health this history of trauma so really a lot of what we do is uncovering this mental health aspect and doing a lot of coaching and so that part felt very familiar um when i was about seven years into practice this unattainable goal of being everything to everyone, this perfectionism that was driving, you know, both my internal drive of wanting to be the best and the external drive of looking at what everyone else is doing and trying to keep up. Um, My husband is a consultant, so he travels for a living. So he's gone five days a week and I had two young children. So ultimately all of this stuff compounded and I just got epically burned out. And really to the point that I could not get out of bed anymore to go to work. And so I ended up taking a leave of absence from work just to like put my life back together because I, I was like, I can't do medicine anymore. I really felt like it was my own personal failure to, that I couldn't practice and be this ideal physician that I thought I should be. I think a lot of women or a lot of people in
1: medicine do feel that way as well, especially if we have that type A personality, that the wanting to be perfect, the wanting to, um, you know, do everything and anything and everything for your patients. And so I do definitely, I can hear what you're saying. And I think perfectionism and burnout almost go hand in hand. Like if you are that perfectionist type person, at some point you are going to get burnout. I know I've been there. I know a lot of my friends and colleagues have been there as well.
0: Yeah, you know, at the core of perfectionism really is this feeling that I'm not enough, right? And if I just did more and if I looked better on paper and if I kept up and made more RVUs and, you know, if, if I just did all these things, then this feeling of insufficiency would go away. Mm-hmm. But really at the core of it, um, until you own who you are, own that this feeling is being driven by I'm not enough, I'm afraid of being vulnerable. I'm ashamed of being worthless until I really got to that piece of me and really worked that out. The burnout was really inevitable because there is no end to the amount of work that we can do in medicine, right? Right, right. Be everything to everyone. So, in that period of sabbatical, came a lot of conversations with other physicians who were saying, like, you took a sabbatical. How did you negotiate that with your practice? How did you come to that decision? Um, That must have taken so much bravery on your part. And there was, let me tell you, no bravery involved on my part. I literally could not do my life anymore. And so um, I didn't realize I was coaching at the time, but it came out of that, that, that period to say like, hey, if I can do this, you can do it too. And I know I'm not the only person who's unhappy practicing medicine right now. Mm-hmm. And so um, to put purpose to that period of pain, I recognized that a lot of physicians needed to be validated and needed to be heard in their struggles. And so I started coaching around burnout and then ultimately got life coach certified and now have a um, practice for physicians and high achievers who are really struggling with perfectionism, burnout, imposter syndrome.
1: Wow, that's so incredible. I'm so glad that you are uh, putting yourself out there to help others who may be in similar positions. Um, So tell me a little bit about, so you talked a little bit about burnout. So what was your process through that time period? Did you take some time off of your clinical practice or how did you um, manage your own personal burnout?
0: Yeah, so I, I, um, I had been asking for help from a therapist who I've now seen for 10 years, um, and sh- she was wonderful, and she <laughs> I joke with her still, like, you must really be into delayed gratification because it wasn't that I wasn't feeling bad. It wasn't that I knew I was headed for disaster. It was that I was not willing to take the time to take care of myself for my own personal wellness and to really acknowledge what I needed, which was setting boundaries, asking for help, you know, saying this life of being a top producer and being everything to everyone is just not simply filling me up anymore. Mm -hmm. Um, and so it really took me hitting rock bottom to say, I can't do this. And so, um, so, out of that, I knew I needed to work less. So I came back at part time, which you can't see me doing air quotes, but (laughs) (laughs) part time is 40 hours of work a week still, right? I mean, part time in medicine does not mean I'm going home at lunchtime and eating bonbons. It means I can at least carve out a flexible schedule that works for me. Mm -hmm. Um, And so I'm grateful for a practice that allowed me to do that and wanted me to stay um, in whatever way they could have me. So I'm fortunate that I work for um, a practice that allows that flexibility. I know not everyone has that.
1: You have to make that
0: yeah. ask though. I think that's really important. Absolutely. And the truth is like we have so much power that we don't recognize that we have. And we as physicians, I think particularly this COVID crisis has really illustrated that we have the training and capacity for what we need. And we are recognizing that we cannot possibly hold this healthcare system together single-handedly. And so mm. I'm really interested to see what comes out of this um, period of global reset. You know I hope that the physicians who are feeling burned out and went into this crisis burned out can really take this as an opportunity to recognize what they really need um, to sustain themselves, whether they're in medicine or not.
1: right. And I think um, what you talk about, you know, as far as asking for that help or asking to reduce your hours to your part-time hours, I mean, I think that's a very uncomfortable place for a lot of people who are not used to asking for help, particularly, I think, women. I mean, I think whether it's a, a woman physician or, or any, a woman of any career, um, I think it's just a very uncomfortable place for a lot of us to be in.
0: Yeah, I think a lot of that comes from not from that place of insecurity that I mentioned earlier. Like, Mm -hmm. if I knew then what I knew now, you know, the infamous quote, but like, I know what I need to be successful, take it or leave it. But at that time, I really did not feel empowered to ask. I didn't feel that I could even look and acknowledge what I really needed because Mm -hmm. so many of us are on this track of like checking the boxes, like graduate from college, then med school, then residency, then fellowship. Maybe you get married and have kids, you get a house, and it's like this path is carved out in front of us, um, and to take a step off of that feels very scary for a lot of people, and so really recognizing what you need is, is really um, the hardest part, and then saying, hey, this is what I need to be successful, mm-hmm. and if you need me here, if you want me to be part of the system, then this is what I need to be successful. A lot of people don't feel empowered to even make the that ask. That's very true.
1: So, um, once you kind of cut back um, on your clinical time, was that when you started adding um, the coaching on the side, or tell us a little bit about what that looks like for you?
0: Yeah, so um, having a um, part time clinical schedule allows me flexibility of when I do all the administrative work and so um, coming back part time, I started asking those questions about how can I help other people and how can I not let anyone have to go through this experience that I went through, or at least walk with them if they're going through it. So I started um, a practice a little over a year ago um, and I see one-on-one clients. I do group work, I've done CME work. um, And so it's a way to really address these topics both privately and with the support of fellow physicians to say, hey, you're not alone. And these are issues that we all struggle with. Awesome. And I'm sure that you've, you've met along the way, so many
1: amazing women um, who you are able to coach through as well. Yeah. Um, So (laughs) if um, people want to find out a a little bit about
0: your coaching uh, business, um, how would they be able to find you? Uh, One of two ways. So I have a website, which is KaraPepperMD.com. Um, Everything you need to know about me is there. And then also follow me on social media, um, Instagram, Facebook, Twitter, and LinkedIn at KaraPepperMD. And I post pretty regularly lots of coaching tips and articles and thoughts about what it's like to be a physician. Um, And it's really gathered this really incredible community of of people, both physicians and non-physicians. That's really cool.
1: Awesome. And I have one more question for you. So if you could tell eighth grade Kara something Mm -hmm. just a little bit of advice maybe pre-Russia what would you tell her oh (laughs) sorry to put you on the spot it just kind of popped up into my my
0: head and I wanted to ask (laughs) beautiful uh what I would tell her whether or not she would listen or not is the is the hard part but I would simply tell her you're you're exactly where you're meant to be and you are enough exactly where you are And also you should find a therapist way before when you think you need to.
1: (laughs) You know, it's so funny. I completely agree. And I probably would tell myself the same thing as well. I didn't start um, really taking a lot of importance in my own mental health until within the last, I would say, five to seven years, which, um, you know, I I totally wish I had, you know, taken care of myself and really put the importance of self-care way before that even before having kids, you know, so I think it's very important. And um, I think we're talking more about mental health um, nowadays. So I think that's definitely a good thing. But um, I think um, taking the time out for yourself is so important.
0: You're your most important patient. Perfect. Well,
1: um, thank you so much for taking your time out to share with us your journey, and um, I've never had a ballerina <laughs> on on the podcast, and I think it's just so amazing, and one last thing I just wanted to share with you was, um, I, I read a lot when I was a kid, and I remember reading some books about ballerinas, and it's just, like, it's very intense, really, really intense, like all the training, all the time you put into it. So I think it's amazing, your journey. And um, thank you again so much for, for sharing your
0: time with us today. Thank you so much for having me. I really appreciate it. Thank you.
1: Thank you for listening to this episode of the Wish Well podcast. I hope you enjoyed it. Please subscribe and follow along every week for new episodes. You can find us on Instagram at wishwell.health and at our website, wishwell.health.blog. Until next time, I wish you health and I wish you wellness.